Episode 50 of the China Path podcast. James Scullin here from the Australia China Business Council. When we first launched this podcast back in September 2017, our first guest was the ACBC national president at the time, John Brumby. Now, 50 episodes later, it's fitting to celebrate our half century with the newly elected ACBC national president, David Olson. We discuss the current state of bilateral relations, the inherent underpinnings of the Australia China economic relationship, China literacy, BRI the digitalization of the renminbi, and the role David sees ACBC playing as Australia-China engagement continues to evolve. David Olson is one of Australia's most respected leaders in the business and legal sectors throughout Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. He brings a wealth of experience as a former partner at Kingwood and Mallison's for more than 25 years, where he's held several key practice and management positions, including as managing partner from 2004 to 2007, and as senior partner based in Beijing from 2008 to 2013. He's currently a senior consultant to the firm. David's also been a member of the Victorian Branch Executive Committee of the ACBC from March 2013, and chaired its Finance and Investment Services Working Group. In addition to his roles at Kingwood and Mallison and ACBC, David currently holds a number of directorships and senior roles with industry and business associations, including as chair of the Australian Renminbi Working Group, co-chair of ACBC's China Capital Markets Working Group, deputy chair of the Australian National University Foundation, non-executive director of Black Diamond Group Limited, as well as advisory board roles with the Australia-China Belt and Road Initiative and IMM. He's a new Colombo business champion, former chair of the Australian Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, former chair of Melbourne Affordable Housing, and a former member of the Australia-China Council. I hope you enjoy our discussion. I'm here in Melbourne with newly appointed ACBC National President David Olson. David, firstly, congratulations on your appointment of ACBC National President and thanks for coming by to the podcast. Thanks very much, James. Now, David, you're by no means new to ACBC. When did you first begin your involvement with the organisation? Uh, ACBC involvement really started about 2013. That's when I came back from China after having spent some time up there and uh, having been with the Australian Chambers of Commerce in China, it was just a natural segue into the, the council down here. Mm, okay. And so um, what was your role when you were in China? That was working for um, Kingwood Mallison's? Yes. So I went up there in 2000, the end of 2007 as a representative for Mallison Stephen Jakes, that's the, the predecessor of my current firm. Uh, really to run our China operations based in Beijing. Um, that subsequently expanded quite significantly over a period of time, and I came back at the end of 2013. Mm. And, um, and so when did your China journey, so to speak, begin? When did you start becoming involved in China? Well, the China journey, I guess, for me, started probably around about 1995. Mm. Um, while I generally had an interest in China, I'd never studied formally you know, Chinese history or language at that point. But in 1995, I had the opportunity to go to the Mallison's office in Hong Kong for a couple of years. And as part of the role that I had there, I was appointed as our representative 
for our small, at that stage, office based in Beijing. Mm. So I was travelling up basically once a month, talking to regulators, talking to, to clients up there, and uh, that sparked my interest. And so what do you remember of Beijing in uh, 1995? Well, Beijing in those days was very much the, the Beijing that we sort of visualise of the old style uh, Beijing, you know, people still walking around in blue mouse suits, bicycles everywhere. Right. Um, you know, very difficult to uh, to actually negotiate your way around without you know really good support uh, network. So it was for me it was just a fascinating experience. You know, I'd, I'd lived and worked in many countries before China, but culturally it was probably the most interesting that I'd come across at that stage. And so in 2008, when you started your posting there at Kingwood Mallisons, um, how, how would you describe the sentiment around that time with the with the Beijing Olympics? That must have been so much different from 1995. Oh, massive change. So that period in the lead up to the Olympics was, I think, just a magic period in China's history. You know, they were they were well down the path of the opening up process. The Olympics itself was really touted as China's coming out party. Mm. Um, it was really entering the world stage at that stage. Physically, uh, Beijing looked fantastic. The air quality was getting better and better. But um, the, the overall sentiment was one of unbridled optimism. Right. Know, one sense that China was on a roll. Uh, there was a sense of purpose around what was happening in, in China at the moment. Um, from a foreigner's perspective, it was a terrific time to be there because mm. there was a desire to actually engage, you know, really constructively with uh, foreigners working in cities and the country. Mm. And that opened up many doors uh, that probably don't exist today. Would you say that optimism and positivity extended also to the Australia-China relationship around that time period? Oh, absolutely. You know, that was probably the high point of our relationship. You know, we had... Um, you know, several prime ministers making visits. We were in the, the final stages of the negotiation of the free trade agreement with China. Um, there was a real sense that of optimism that you know, Australia and China were moving down a path of true collaboration. You know, the, the compatibility of our markets and our economies was constantly talked about. Mm. There were multiple delegations, ministerial delegations coming up. and uh, So it was an exciting time. And I fortunately had a a wonderful opportunity to have a helicopter view of this because I'd become, by that stage, the chairman of Auscham Beijing. Mm. And so there were regular delegations coming up, you know, people wanting to talk to the Australian business uh, community on the ground, and it was just an exciting time. So how would you describe the sentiment these days? Obviously, it's maybe not as optimistic as it was back in 2008 with the signing of a free trade agreement, um, but where would you see the relationship being at right now? Well, I, th I think you have to look at this in many ways. Um, if you're sitting on the ground, you know, working inside an Australian business, you know, you're probably quite optimistic about the future. There was an interesting survey done um, late last year, published earlier this year, the Westpac uh, Auscham Shanghai Business Sentiment Survey. And while there were, you know, the, the usual concerns around the operating environment and, you know, some concerns about things getting a bit tougher, uh, naturally... The, uh, the, the big takeaway was that in the longer term, people felt very positive about the outlook for Australian businesses in China and mm. for foreign businesses as, as a whole. So I think when you look at the, the business sentiment, it's a, quite a strong, optimistic view around the future. And that's sort of grounded upon a good understanding of the, the fundamentals of, of what's happening within the Chinese markets and the economy. Mm. Obviously, the political element is, is different these days. We've, we've got a whole series of you know, issues that you know, need to be managed sensitively uh, in the public arena and the political arena. The influence issue, you can't understate you know, the, the, uh, the hacking into the systems down here, the conversations we're having around you know, human rights type issues. These are, these are big issues that um, have, a, have a, a business impact. 
but in many respects are a different conversation you know, at, at a different level to the business mm. discussions. Would you say on an economic level there's just some inherent complementarities between the Australian and, and Chinese economies which does make it quite a fruitful economic relationship at least? Uh, undoubtedly. I think and that puts Australia in a unique position around the world. We can often get carried away with you know the views of, of other nations, you know the US in particular. But when you look at our trade balance, it's the direct opposite of what what exists with the United States. Mm. We we export more to China than we import. Right. So we we have a, a you know a favourable balance uh, of accounts, and that that pervades a lot of things because we've got that strong balance of payments. We've got a very strong personal engagement that's been built up over decades and decades of engagement mm. and, uh, with China, you know, from the students that went up in the late 70s that really started the, the first run at China mm. um, to the multiple levels of business people uh, and now New Colombo Plan students and students generally who have studied up there. So not to mention the, the 1.2 million people of Chinese ethnic origin in Australia that uh, are part of that broader China diaspora uh, mm. that bind our, um, our cultures together in many respects. You mentioned your um, role as chair of the Australian Chamber in Beijing when you were living over there in China. One of the things that's often forgotten about China is how competitive it is for all international countries over in market. How would you evaluate Australia's footprint over in China and Australia's depth of China literacy. Do you think Australia is prepared for the China challenge over there in market where it is so competitive? I think we sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that we are very China literate because of the economic relationship we have. Um, as I said, we've got 1.2 million people who have some you know, ethnic or cultural affinity with China and many, many students and others are studying the language and have worked there. But uh, that doesn't mean we're, we're strong in terms of our understanding of Chinese culture. Sitting on the ground in Beijing, you know, particularly, I did notice the huge numbers of Europeans and even Americans that would come across that seemed to have a much greater understanding of Chinese culture and philosophy um, than, than we did. Mm. You know? um, so I, I think we, we need to be you know, even-minded even in terms of how we think about ourselves and our capacity to actually understand where China's coming from and you know, what's drive, driving it as a whole. So now, having said all that, there are some amazing experts in the field. You know, people who have studied the language that have worked over there for years that have really deep insights and that, that's a fantastic asset for Australia as a whole. But when we talk about China in a more public way, I think you know, we, we lack an understanding that, um, that other nations, some other nations have you know, to a greater degree. What about from a corporate level? Do you think a lot of the um, high-end corporates in Australia, particularly the main decision makers on on boards and um, CEOs of organisations, do you think they have a lot of in-market experience like yourself of having lived over in China? Or do you think this is an area where Australia may need to improve by giving real decision makers in Australian business um, opportunity in market? Well, I think if I had to give a mark out of 10, I'd say five out of 10. Right. You know, like, <laughs> it's not that great. Uh, there are many Australian business leaders that have spent considerable time on the ground in China that know the market and are running fantastic businesses. Mm. And that can be at the top end, you know, the top ASX 200 level companies, or right down to small, you know, very small SME businesses, you know, people that do have that knowledge. But having lived now for, you know, seven years or so on the ground in China and continuing to go up regularly, I still meet board directors, uh, CEOs at times, um, some of whom are only making their very first 
trip into China mm. and are still being dazzled by the high buildings and the fast trains yeah. um, without a real depth of understanding of what's going on there. There's a lot more education that's required mm. to get Australian companies up to speed to be able to understand where China's coming from. And I'm sure the same could be said for Australian politicians as well. Indeed. Look, it's a shame that um, you know, not all our politicians get invitations to attend and, and visit, uh, as we've seen recently. But I think there is a good, actually, flow of politicians mm. and uh, government officials, you know, bureaucrats coming out of government departments and even local governments mm. now are sending quite a few of their, their teams up to China to sort of start to immerse themselves mm. in that. So I, I think we need to give credit in, in some cases. Mm. We can certainly do a lot more, but... It's a good start. Sure. Now, David, you also worked um, for an international law firm over in Beijing and a, and a Chinese law firm. How do you compare working for such different entities over there in market? Well, I should say they're the one and the same firm uh, right. because we did combine the two, the Australian law firm with a Chinese domestic law firm in 2011. In fact, uh, that's probably been one of the most exciting periods of my professional life to okay. be involved in a combination between two law firms which clearly are operating in very different legal systems and with very different... Um, practices, you know, mm. local practices, bringing them together and seeing how they operate. So uh, for me, what's the difference? Well, you know, we, we look at things in an Australian context through Australian eyes as a foreign law firm operating up there. But what I have learnt over the last uh, six or so years since we undertook that uh, combination between Malice and Stephen Jakes and King and & Wood, a very strong domestic law firm, is that uh, while, you know, we have different legal systems and different business practices, we actually are motivated by the same degree of professionalism. We're there to serve our clients mm. and uh, wherever they might be. Uh, and that's been an ex exciting journey to sort of see how we merge those cultures together. Okay. Um, it's not easy. And sometimes I sort of liken it to, you know, take it up a, a notch or two to the national level because we are in some respects a sort of a, a, a microcosm of the much bigger picture. Right. You know, how do you help each other to see the world from other, from another perspective is it is the great challenge we all face. Yeah, right. Okay. And when you're sitting in an office and uh, you know next door to each other or alongside each other in an open plan environment, and you're talking to them constantly and you're you're managing the language issues for one thing, mm. uh, but you're constantly learning you know new insights about what's important to them, mm. and what drives them. Yeah, right. You know, what, and uh, and and at the same time sharing your your insights. So David in your day job you're the um, Kingwood Mellison China practice consultant. How do you interact with China these days on a day-to-day -day level? Well, I'm based here in Melbourne now. I go up to China quite regularly. Uh, my role as a consultant having retired as a partner of the firm a few years ago uh, is really to sort of be an interface between both our partners and teams on the ground in China and Australia. Mm -hmm. So I'm just part of a, a much bigger sort of network of engagement uh, that's around there. But having spent a bit of time, I had some insights into that. But uh, most of the work I do in my role at the moment is of a strategic nature, either working with the, the senior management team of this firm around how we strategically engage in the region. Mm. It's not just China, it's more broadly around mm. the region. Um, and at times working with clients um, around their particular China strategies and also uh, working closely with industry. So I've got a, a couple of roles um, in the financial markets uh, arena which you know, give, bring me into contact with Treasury and Reserve Bank mm. and um, financial markets players as well. So we're, the, the firm sort of engages me to assist in that process which is really part of 
helping people understand what's happening, mm. uh, helping to, to deliver insights that mm. are relevant to people's businesses or industries. Okay. Now, among your number of advisory board roles, um, you're on the Australia-China Belt and Road Initiative. In general, do you feel the federal government has been overly cautious in its approach to Belt and Road? Well, I think cautious is probably the right word. Whether they're overly cautious or not, we can we can, uh, we can discuss a little bit. But uh, I, I think we should give credit to the federal government to actually maintaining a fairly balanced approach towards the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm. Um, you know, it has, in many occasions and through many voices, you know, welcomed the contribution that Belt and Road can make to regional infrastructure investment and you know uh, regional development and has said on a number of occasions that um, when opportunities arise in the right circumstances, the Australian government would support Belt and Road initiatives, mm. you know, looking at it on a, on a case-by-case basis. Right. The underlying theme is, well, we'll only do it, though, if there's proper transparency, proper governance and rules that surround all of that. Yep. So I think all of that's a fairly balanced and pragmatic approach to dealing with the Belt and Road Initiative. Most of the concern and the pushback around the government is around the fact that we haven't signed a formal memorandum of, of understanding, an right. MOU. Yep. I think it's unlikely in the current environment that the federal government is going to, to jump down that path. But at the end of the day, for me, it doesn't really matter, even though I'm on the advisory board for the Australia-China Belt and Road Initiative. Um, I don't think the signing of the MOU is the be-all and end-all of anything. You know, that's a political decision as to whether we sign up or not. Mm. But from a business perspective, I think the most important thing is that we don't take an anti-Belt and Road Initiative right. view just because it's not positive. So mm. we, we, it shouldn't be a binary choice. You're either with it or against it. Okay. You know, I think there are many opportunities for Australian business to be actively engaged in Belt and Road projects, uh, you know, possibly here in Australia through the, some of the, the efforts of the Victorian government almost certainly uh, around uh, Southeast Asia, where there are major VRI projects sort of ongoing and on the, the development plans. And I think we, as Australian companies, have real opportunities to participate in that. Would you say that's more um, Australia taking up a role um, with regards to services on BRI projects as opposed to hard infrastructure engagement? Yeah, I think that that plays naturally to us to our strengths. Mm. You know, we're, we're excellent. You know, in terms of engineering capabilities, design capabilities, financing, structuring capabilities, uh, environmental uh, capabilities. All of that. All of those are important components to very large projects, which yeah. is what we're talking about in in the Belt and Road context. So. Mm. The challenge for Australian companies is to be able to get in there in the first place, and this is one of the, you know, the, I guess the things that the, the Belt and Road Initiative here has been trying to do as, a, as an organisation is to say, well, you know, let's find a way to find out what those opportunities are. Yeah, right. Um, you know, we, we, we are frustrated. Many companies would like to be involved, but how do you find out about it? Mm. Because there's no book that actually says, well, here are all the Belt and Road projects. Sure. While I said I didn't mind whether we signed a, an MOU or not, I think it is desirable that we should seriously consider that going forward because there are a number of important reasons for that. The first is that if you look at you know, the way China wants to engage in the world now, they're, they're doing so through different mechanisms. You know, the Belt and Road Initiative has been enshrined in the constitution of China. Mm. It's core to how they engage broadly in their conversations around China. So if you look at all the nations that have signed an MOU uh, so far, and there's sort of 160 or 70 of them, mm. uh, admittedly, in many developing nations. But that's the mechanism that China uses to engage. Right. And I think we're finding it also here in Victoria 
um, where the Victorian government has signed an MOU and moved to a framework agreement, that that's now providing an opportunity to talk very specifically about projects that might be, be projects that Victorian Australian companies can be can participate in. So, by participating in the process without without sort of signing up to all the the stuff that we don't agree, but we can still have a conversation around that. Mm. The other thing is it, it you know it's a mechanism for providing investment yeah, funds. Yeah, we're, right. we're a net importer of capital, so this is another way of potentially getting access to um, to more capital. But ultimately, I think it's a point that's been made in other contexts. You know, if you look at Belt and Road projects, you know what they're doing is actually helping to sort of rebuild and rebuild in some cases economies. You know, mm. bringing people out of poverty and sure. sort of you know raising standards of living, and that in itself is a, a worthy purpose for these initiatives and you know, give some substance and credence to it. Mm. Now, David, you've also chaired the Australian um, renminbi working group. Would you say the renminbi is truly an international currency these days? Well, there's no doubt the renminbi is an international currency. Okay. You know, currently, it's now around about the fifth most traded currency. It's the fifth most currency used most frequently for invoicing and settlement of trade transactions. Oh, okay. Um, and most of that is in our region. These are countries that are engaging broadly you know, with China, directly with China. Uh, but it's not a global currency. Mm. It's not a currency or a reserve currency that you know, people feel is a secure currency. And that's because it's not fully convertible. Right, okay. So until we can deal with that whole convertibility issue, it's going to be very hard for the renminbi to be a global reserve currency, which is China's ambition. Mm. So there's a tension there. Okay. Yeah. China's got to open up its economy. It's got to allow its currency to flow more freely uh, for it to be a global currency. But on the other hand, China doesn't want to do that, open up its, its capital account, because that would reduce its ability to manage its own economy. Right. It feels it's got to a stage where it can do so. But having said all that, I, I've, I've said previously that I actually predict that it, it will become a very significant currency and probably within the next 10 years. So mm. if you're talking you know, 2030, you know, I think you're going to see the renminbi sitting alongside the US dollar for large cross-border trade transactions. Mm. And I say that because Belt and Road, for one, China's driving Belt and Road projects and it's in the driving seat to be able to say, well, what currency will we use for, right. for, for the investment or the financing of those projects? We're now starting to see... Countries, you know, including Saudi Arabia and others, sort of using the renminbi to price futures contracts for oil commodities. So once you start to sort of get that those volumes into the market, that drives liquidity, it drives usage, it mm. it, it, it it oils the market, <laughs> uh, and we can expect to see more. The other point is that as China's um, you know middle class starts travelling around the world more, they're using technology-based payment systems. WeChat, Pay, all of, all of that, which are linked to the renminbi. And so while you mightn't actually think they're using renminbi when they swipe their mobile device for, to pay for something, right. the underlying transaction that's being used is renminbi. Mm. So you're starting to sort of see more and more of that being used in the global environment. And then, of course, you've got the opening up of China's you know, investment opportunities. Right now, China is trying to encourage more foreign investment into its stock and bond markets, particularly its, its bond markets for offshore investors. It's been driven by a lot of you know, structural factors, including benchmarks and things like that. Mm. But 
as more foreign money gets invested into China, including my, my pensions funds, your pensions funds, your, there will be a, a portion of that invested into China's markets because the Chinese markets will be so significant as time goes by that we have to invest in there uh, into those markets. We'll manage the risk, or pension funds will manage that risk, but again, it'll be in local currency. So add all those things together and you can see that in a relatively short space of time, the renminbi will become a more important currency. Now, the good thing from Australia's perspective uh, is that we are really well prepared for this. You know, we've been working, you know, the Australian government through Treasury uh, and all the commercial banks in Australia have been working really hard to set themselves up to be able to transact and settle safely, quickly and very efficiently. So we're in a much better position than many other nations. Mm. So, David, with the Chinese economy in general, would you say that there's a clear trajectory towards opening up? Or do you think that as the Chinese economy gets bigger and bigger, it, it, it tends to maybe be a little cautious about opening yeah. up? I, it's a good question. I, I, you know, there's no doubt that the rhetoric is around in more, we want more investment into, into, into China. Sure. You know, the, 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 you know, the big new investment forum is around more trading, more investment and mm. things like that. But the reality is there are a lot of structural issues that make it hard for foreigners to invest in China at the moment. Okay. You know, there's all the concerns about you know, IP rights and things like that, but, but more structurally, the allocation of capital is not done in as market-driven way as we would want mm. from a, an investment perspective. Uh, there's still some uncertainties around how do you manage risk, you know, who, take, who takes the ultimate risk on some of these investments, you know, how much support can you rely upon government in China to sort of cover defaults, um, all of that, there's still a lot more work to be done. Okay. So in light of China's evolving economy, um, what do you see as some of the future trends and major opportunities for Australian business in China, for Australian companies large and small? The opportunities are wide, diverse and significant. Mm. You know, it all goes back to looking at the structural changes that are occurring within China. You know, the, 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 the ageing population, the need to continue to develop its urbanisation processes which require hard commodities, but also the soft commodities around technology, um, the the need for environmental services, uh, more consumer-driven services, moving up the value chain, people want more, they want a different style of life. So they're the fundamentals that we, we read and hear about and understand quite well. Okay. They want to travel more, they want better education, they want better health outcomes. So all of that, they're the, they're the drivers. Right. So I think, and where very well set up in Australia to be able to provide that. So mm. that complementarity, we've talked about previously in the context of you know, the mining and resources and energy sectors, now we're applying that in the context of the services sector. Right. The difference, however, is that unlike iron ore, where we are a dominant global provider, there are nations all around the world and companies all around the world vying to provide exactly the same sorts of services to the Chinese markets. Sure. So we have to be smarter you know, and sharper in terms of how we engage with China to make sure that our services and what we offer is, is preferred. So th the framework that I think we need to start thinking about is, is, is having as a national objective that we are part of the fabric of the region and that you know, when China looks to Australia, they look to us as being a deep complementary part of the region and an integral part of the whole Asian ecosystem. So we need to move from being a provider not just of commodities, mm. hard commodities, resources, 
energy, yeah, which we will continue for some time, but of high value goods and services. That's the real focus we're seeing now, you know, particularly through the efforts of Austrade and others to sort of identify that value add. We need to better understand the importance of global value chains and supply chains. You know, Australian companies have been, you know, have done well in fitting into that. We're small players in many respects and we've fitted into well into those, those supply chains, but they're being disrupted quite radically now, partly by the US-China trade wars, which is causing people to relocate, you know, locations for manufacturing plants or commodity, you know, small, small parts, uh, but also by technology. Mm. You know, you can now access markets without actually having to have physical presences. So where do Australian companies fit into those chains and how do they develop a, a compelling value proposition to keep us in those chains or even to own those chains in some cases? We also can, need to play you know, a bigger role in the development of the integrated financial markets. Mm. You know, we've just spoken about removing the internationalisation and you know, at a policy level, we are very well positioned. You know, we, we have identified the need to be able to transact and invest in Romimbi as an important component of what we do. But the, 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 the whole financial markets is now deeply embedded into payment systems, you know, we've talked about in terms of how you pay things, yep. fintech, all of that. Now, we've got great expertise. Mm. Payment systems will be the key to the success of many organisations in the future. So being leaders in that space is absolutely critical. The other piece then, of course, you know, if we're going to succeed, we need our Asian literacy, our China literacy. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think we need to talk about a a Asian literacy as much as China literacy because, we, you know, we're talking about the region. Of course. But we, we've got to continue to focus on that, develop the right skills, the right capabilities, and importantly, the right mindset within organisations and institutions to say, look, well, we have to start thinking all of this way. So at this point, a big shout out to you know schemes like the New Colombo Plan, uh, which and, and the Hamer Scheme in Victoria and others that are in actively encouraging you know students to study abroad. Mm. As the premier bilateral business organisation dedicated to the Australia-China relationship, how do you see ACBC playing a role in Australia being a, a, a greater part of the fabric of the region, as you say? The ACBC has been around for forty-six years. We were set up just one year after we established diplomatic relations, and I think people actually forget at times just the, the longevity of this organisation. It's an, it's an organisation that's evolved over the time, originally state-based, now we're a national federation, much more focused around, uh, around the relationship. So over the last few years, you know, under John Bromby's presidency, we've bedded down, we've got, got the internal structures right. The organisation is humming along really, really well. Mm. We've got our relationships around with our branches in states and territories around, all, in all states and territories around Australia better down nicely. I think our challenge now as an organisation is to continue to make ourselves relevant at a more higher level. So uh, I think what that really means is that, you know, we need to be able to help our government develop, execute and continually, you know, keep an eye on our China strategy, our national China strategy. Mm. Um, there, there has been a tendency in recent times to split the economic relationship from the political and the security defence type relationship. Okay. Now, I think that's a very dangerous path for us to follow. I can, mm. you know, it's quite understandable why this has happened. But I think from an ACBC perspective, you know, one of the things we'll be taking forward in the year ahead is doubling down on trying to ensure that we keep the two 
separate. You know, we've got to manage each of them, mm. but we can't let one dominate the other mm. for fear that that just overwhelms the whole economic relationship, which is actually, you know, core to our prosperity. Because I don't think there's any scenario you can think of in the next two decades where China won't be front and centre in terms of our prosperity as a nation. Right. You know, China succeeds, China doesn't succeed, it will have a direct impact on us because we're so interlinked with China. So from a business perspective, making sure we've got the right voices at the table, that we have the right connections with all our members and all our stakeholders so that we can bring, we can curate uh, the right conversations and keep the conversations balanced and as independent as you possibly can. Mm. You know, um, our role is not to be a voice piece for China. Uh, I think you know some people might think the ACBC is just there to sort of promote Australia's economic relationship with China, per se, drive the business. In fact, we want to do far more than that. That's that's important. We get the business outcomes, but you can't get the business un- outcomes unless you've got the right policy settings mm. and that we're all working on this together. So we want to be a trusted advisor to everybody. You know, we, we, we need to be trusted. Uh, that means our members, our government relationships uh, across the board. Mm. Okay. Well, David, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Let's hope for many prosperous years ahead, not just for ACBC, but the um, Australia-China relationship at large. Thanks very much, James. I've enjoyed talking with you. privilege to speak to David about all things Australia-China business, and I hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on David, please drop by to the podcast homepage at acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts, where you can find show notes from all our previous episodes. In addition to thanking David, I'd also like to thank all of the guests over our 50 episodes and two plus years of the podcast. I'd also like to thank our grant providers over the years, namely Austrade and DFAT's Australia-China Council. Thanks also to my brother Byron for producing the music and themes for the pod, as well as Wes Smith for our logo design. Last but not least, a huge thanks also to ACBC CEO Helen Savchak, who put faith in the podcast in its early days and has been a huge supporter since day one. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and help us to continue to grow our listenership. That's all it for this episode. We wish you a very Merry Christmas and look forward to bringing you more China Path podcast episodes in 2020. Until next time, Zai Jian. <laughs>